doing now. This morning we are going to do three things, which will take us into the afternoon, actually. We're going to look at the minor prophets called the Twelve as an intro section, and then we're going to look at Hosea and Joel, okay, or Joel, whatever your preference is on that. And so three different things. I've split them up into three different um, presentations, and so we'll have a, at least a mini break in between each one. The shortest of the sessions will be our first uh, as an introduction to the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. I very much appreciate uh, Paul House's intro. I don't actually know um, if I assigned the intro pages. Uh, you can tell me in, in a second here if I did or not. Uh, I know that the Hosea section was assigned, but did I actually assign the, the two pages or so that was the intro to the 12? Anybody know? If you, if you read it already or, or not? Um, if you look at your books, if you have them with you, you will find that it's on page uh, 231. So you probably have not been um, exposed to this idea before. I don't know. It's, it's not in all the survey books. It's just skipped over or glossed over or, or whatnot. But uh, I found this to be um, very, very good that House includes it. And I'm not surprised because House is very much a proponent of the uh, Hebrew Bible chronology for teaching OT survey. So I don't know, now that you're on the page, um, you, does anybody recall? Or you can look on my, you have the syllabus. I did get those. Page 231. Yes, it is assigned with um, Hosea. So it was assigned for this week. So this intro uh, couple of pages from House is really going to lead our discussion on the 12 <coughs> and the sequence of their arrangement in the Hebrew Bible. And so the, the 12 uh, prophets, okay? So this is just a, a pictogram that somebody created that I pulled off the Internet um, of the 12 different prophets. And we normally look at them as 12 individual prophets. I mean, there's a connection because they're prophets. But generally speaking, you, you preach them or you teach them or you think about them as individuals, all right? And the thing is that that's not how the, the Hebrews uh, would have pictured it or, or thought of them. To them, it was the 12, called the 12, uh, not minor prophets, but the 12 on one story. It was one book. We think of them as 12 books. So it was just one book. And so... These are, are the 12 we're going to look at today. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. <coughs> and so these, these 12, or one, all right, <coughs> and their sequence is what I want to talk through moments here. Both Paul House and then um, Jason Jerushi and his commentary and book, he came out, I think, I think it came out last year, his book on the uh, Old Testament survey. Um, let's see, what the, what the biblical authors uh, really meant, the Ulysses Bible, a survey of the Old Testament, long title, an OT survey. Um, but he, like House, uh, goes in the order that Jesus would have the Bible, and he has a discussion in there, and then he's got some additional teaching notes. Uh, they're accessible online as well. So this chart is taken um, from his book and, and also his teaching notes. 
and you can see the, the sequence of events here. And he discusses the idea of the canon. So we're back at the conversation we had quite a while ago about the canon and, and how it's structured. And uh, he mentions Doug Stewart. Are you guys familiar with Doug Stewart at all? Um, he uh, has written a lot of stuff, and that includes How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Those are very popular um, titles of his, and I, I recommend both of them. But in discussing this idea about the organization of the canon, um, Doug Stewart and others would, would not see it exactly the same way as uh, House and Darushi would as far as how God has uh, divinely orchestrated these 12 in their order. Okay? Now, they're not in chronological order. All right? They're roughly in chronological order. A bunch of them are, but they're not all 12 in chronological order. So the question becomes, well, if, if God has put them together this way as this 12 and in this order, okay, why? What's, what's the point? Why are they like this? And so I want to make a few comments related to this. And it, it will maybe change a little bit, you know, your perspective as you approach the minor prophets in the 12 and see that there is somewhat of a uh, connection between them. Um, about 75% of them are in chronological order. So that leaves about a quarter that are not. Nine of the 12, okay? So Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah are the three that are out of place. chronological sequence differs so slightly may suggest the editor intended rough chronological order. However, the changes may also suggest a theological agenda in the arrangement. That's what Darushi says. Okay? The Septuagint offers an alternative order of the first six prophets, which suggests that these six may have circulated independently as a collection prior to being grouped together with the rest. Now, that's probably common with all of the original writers. Okay? If you think about it, they wrote at periods, and so their writings are being circulated uh, wherever. It's kind of like the writings of Paul. He writes to the churches of Galatia, and that's being circulated around to the different churches in the region of Galatia, and you know they don't have necessarily all these other letters that, that Paul wrote until at some point you know they were put together, and now you know for you and me, they're bound together in a book. So in the Septuagint arrangement, only Jonah is out of place uh, chronologically. So Doug Stewart says, the arrangement of the 12 is not inspired, and the Hebrew ordering is secondary to the primary ordering found in the Septuagint. So he prefers the Septuagint ordering. Okay? Paul House, in your, in your textbook, says, these 12 prophets were joined together in this way because as a group they display many of the literary and theological features of the major prophets, providing canonical support and expansion of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. So, in the arrangement, familiar themes and characterization of God took precedence over chronology. Specifically, the twelve is arranged in a way that stresses the threefold theme of sin, punishment, restoration um, in, in that order. So, I'll come back and forth to this chart here. But And so, the seriousness of sin, whoops, I don't think that's the one I wanted. Um, sorry. Restoration um, are the main themes. Let's see if I have it up there or not. So what you will have is the first 
six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay? Here with sin. Alright? And then punishment. And then um, restoration. So six, three, and three is the order of it. Alright? So first six sin, next three punishment, next three restoration. Um, so putting those together, um, Jerushi would um, agree mostly with House with this organizational I idea. And also some catchword that um, catchword themes that put them together. Another person is um, Dempster. I don't remember his first name. Uh, his book is uh, Dom Dominion and um, Dynasty, I think. Dominion and Dynasty by Dempster. A great book, by the way. And so he observes this uh, similarly. And so the, the chart up on the screen demonstrates this. The other thing that you will notice on the screen is the first six have an alternating pattern of the target message between the north to the south, the north to the south, the north to the south. So you have this alternating message prior to the fall of Israel in 722 BC to what country? Assyria. Assyria. <laughs> You'll know this like nobody's business, right? So until Assyria falls, God has this concern with all of his people. Okay? So north, south, north, south, north, south. After that, well, the north is gone. So the messages are going to be to who? Well, the south. Okay? Because that's all that's left. And so and that's what you'll see on the, on the chart. And you'll see from, from then on, it's southern kingdom. It includes some other nations as well. But southern kingdom, in which is Judah, for uh, most of it. All right. So this is the biblical sequence. This column here has the chronological sequence. Okay. So you can see how uh, they get put out of order a little bit. Okay. All the way on the right, you will see who the world power is. Okay. Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And you'll see that's pre and post exile. So this chart right here summarizes both the empires, the pre and the post-exile, who the target is, and also the chronology versus the biblical sequence and ordering of them. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions on, on what the chart demonstrates? All right. So, with this understanding, <coughs> there's a little bit different of a um, approach or, or thinking as we approach the books. The 12 have some themes, which are not going to be new. Um, they're just going to be themes that are maybe highlighted or further emphasized. All right? These themes will already have uh, surfaced in the major prophets. And remember, when we say we say major and minor prophets, and the minor are only 12 minor because they're what? They're shorter, okay? But uh, the Hebrews, they would call them the 12, all right? One scroll, all of them together. All right, I alliterated this for you. So seriousness of sin, sovereignty of God, and Savior, okay? Elsewhere you might see Messiah, but I tried to alliterate it for you. Anyways, the seriousness of sin, under that you're going to see two different things. You're going to see the idea of covenant loyalty and the day of the Lord. Under sovereignty of God, you're going to see God presented as these four aspects, father, husband, king, and judge, okay? So he is sovereign. But also, maybe it could have been a separate point, maybe, but um, 
characteristics or the character of God as he's presented? Father, husband, king, and judge. Regarding the seriousness of sin, more than the violation of a norm, sin is the desecration of the ultimate relationship. Sin against God is adultery, not just idolatry. And so you'll see this in the scriptures. You know, Hosea 1-2 says, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. I mean, what stands out in that? In this ESV translation, you know, whoredom does, right? So, again, in Hosea 2.13, I'll punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. Chapter 4.1, same. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. So, the seriousness of sin. Malachi shows that at the end of the minor prophets in the age of initial restoration, Israel is still not learning to delight in the love of God. Now, you want to talk about relevance, like, have we learned to delight in God? It's the same thing. Like, they were reproved and reprimanded and rebuked and because of their inability to learn to love God. Um, it's really no different than, than what we still have today. Um, this past week I was talking to uh, <coughs> students and our, our youth, our kids, uh, about King Saul. But I was talking to them in, in their verbiage about whether they're chasing cool or chasing Christ. Um, and that's really the same thing that, that you and I have to deal with, the same thing that Israel was dealing with. So the seriousness of sin. Regarding their covenant commitment and its implication um, to human ethics, one of the things that you're going to see in the 12 or the minor prophets is the seriousness of God relating to um, justice issues and social justice issues. Now, today we're going to look at Hosea and Joel. Hosea and Joel uh, deal with sin on a broader scale, more in general. We get to Amos next week, very specific and pointed about what their sins are. So, uh, Yahweh has, is very concerned with mercy. Okay, He's got to deal with guilt, he's got justice, but he's very concerned with mercy. And these two themes are brought together you know, in, in Jesus, and especially at the cross of, of Christ. So, um, Exodus 34, 6 to 7 is going to be a foundational text. We'll bring that back up in the book of Hosea. But Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will be no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, the third and the fourth generation. So the iniquity is visited the third and fourth generation, but his love and mercy is even beyond that. And so Exodus 34, 6 and, and 7 is going to be key, and we're going to see even in, in Hosea and the other prophets that they underlie several of the things that are brought out in the prophets. Um, the character of, of God and the relationship between father, husband, uh, king, and judge is, is brought out in the 12 as well. <clears throat> his affection, his um, demonstration of fatherly love, but also the idea of him as a husband and his wife has cheated on him. Okay, His wife has been a prostitute, Israel, his people. And we have the same issue. But he's also the king. He's also the right to judge. He's coming with a verdict. 
of punishment due to lesser rating. And of course, within that, we're going to also see the uh, prophesied Messiah. Boom. The other thing we'll see, we'll see this today in the book of Joel as well, is under seriousness of sin, not just the covenant royalty, but the day of the Lord. We discussed a little bit in the past, but the day of the Lord is a, a pretty significant theme when it comes to uh, the book of Joel. So I'll, I'll probably leave the rest of my comments on the day of the Lord um, for that. But both Old Testament and New Testament uh, discuss a lot of different aspects related to the day of the Lord. So, the 12, five different um, aspects that are also brought out. Is the 12 affirmed Yahweh's amazing love and sin's horrific nature? So this goes along with what we said in the previous slide about the seriousness of sin. And under that, I had the covenant loyalty and, and uh, the day of the Lord. But God's love and the horrible effects and consequences of sin. This would be illustrated in Hosea with the marriage to Gomer. You can also connect Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 and how Christ and the church are wedded. Regarding number 2, the 12 also clarify the implication of Yahweh's covenant commitment. Now this brings us back to Exodus 34 which I, I just mentioned. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 reverberates throughout, okay? Just as an example, okay? Hosea 1, 7, 2, 1, 14, 3. Also, Joel 2, 13 and 14, chapter 3, 21, Jonah 4, 2, Micah 7, 18 and 19, and Nahum 1, 3. Okay? So, that is five of the prophets, okay, that we're looking at, and all of those are expanding upon this idea in Exodus 34, which if um, we get the PowerPoint, this should be in the notes section on the PowerPoint. Alright. So, regarding this Exodus 34 passage, okay, that I just read a moment ago, this ancient confession of faith is the basis for both the mercy and the justice of God. It testifies to the basic tension in the character of God. You have his holiness and justice, and then you have his immeasurable mercy and compassion. And people are always trying to figure these things out. All right? Um, we, we do the pendulum swing. You know, we, we highlight too much one side, and we neglect the other side. And the fact of the matter is they're, they're both in there. Um, it's kind of similar to what happens with uh, predestination and free will. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, um, friends don't need to be reconciled. You know, the scripture talks about both. God chose Abraham. God chose Jacob. Well, didn't they have a choice? I don't know. God chose them. You know, um, God chose you if you're if you're a, a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world. What do you mean, chose me? I chose him. Okay, fine. You know, you can go to your deathbed arguing about how it works out, but he loved us before we loved him. So, uh, the point of the fact is that uh, both are demonstrated in Scripture. You know, whoever shall believe. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Yeah, but he chose me before, right? <laughs> okay, well, you can try to hammer out, you know, like many people have tried to, and the bottom line is I don't think um, anybody's going to be able to exactly, you know, 
get all the nuances because God's doing the work. Both audiences, Judas and Joel and Nineveh and Jonah, were guilty of great sin and going to experience God's judgment. Both used the phrase, relent from disaster, Joel 2.13 and Jonah 4.2, to allude to the Exodus creed, Exodus 34.7. Lack of repentance will not kill your name. You can also look at Nahum 1.3, an unrepentant Israel in Amos 9.10, and Micah 3.11, Zephaniah 1.12, and Malachi 2.17. And so you have this idea that um, sin has to be judged and atoned for and punished, whether you're Israel or the pagan nation. At the same time, God has this um, unquestionable compassion and mercy and, and pity um, for both his people and the nations. And his covenant faithfulness through the covenant he made with Israel. And so those two things come together. Um, and that's what number two is talking about. Number three, the twelve stress the need to God's character. Okay? The father, husband, king, and judge character. Living in covenant means that you should resemble your God. Okay? God is father and king. You are supposed to this and to be a bearer. Um, Greg Beal has a book on idolatry. Um, he talks about you become what you worship. So you worship Yahweh, then you should become like Yahweh. The New Testament was you're being made into the image of who? Christ. That's who we Christ is. Right? Uh, the book man of flesh are in God and resemble like God in New Testament. Such as they look like. So we go to doctrine of God and Zephyr, universal for blame, um, ship, lordship, all demonstrate to be a soul and see that in Malachi 1 4, Zephyr 20. Reflecting Yahweh in your body. So if people are to be, right, just say that's a problem. Things that we, if we're trying to, I mean, not you, but we're trying to work and work and know we're going to be a little civil, you know? And uh, give a rip. Oh, is that perfect? You know? Or the, one of the main things is, um, okay, there's no finger foods on your. Don't touch the right. Use the fork. So, anyways, um, my point is the and so who does God provide? Well, Jesus talked about and who God has provided, right? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teachers, right? So we can do all the work. No, to equip the people, the saints, the ministry, right? Well, different, you know. So what prophets and priests and judges supposed to be doing? People. Well, so if the people reflect his or fall, the prophets fall too. Which is why he chastised them. The Lord has class. So I can refer to it right now. <laughs> so in Jeremiah 2 8, chastise the priests, the rulers, and the prophets. Because they're not teaching the people, they're not shepherding the people. What does Ezekiel moan? The lack of people. What does Jesus say in John 10? Well, I am the good shepherd, right? Why? Because you've got horrible shepherds. What does Jesus say in, uh, what is it, Matthew 9 36? He looks out and he sees the people are, are like sheep without a shepherd, right? So reflecting Yahweh requires teaching Yahweh. Thus, the leadership comes under attack. Priests are reprimanded in Hosea 4, 1-2. Lack of justice is decried in Amos 5, 21-24. God's call on Abraham also included this righteous justice aspect. Frequent pairing of these words in the Old Testament. Righteous and justice. And uh, these two words, you have these two words that come together, and they, they uh, refer to one concept, right? And it's the social justice aspect. So upholding and maintaining the law for all people without distinction. Any worship that does not take seriously this call is not true worship. Right? We worship in what? Spirit and in truth. James says that pure religion does what? Take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Right? So if we're doing this, we're not 
button. We're not worshiping. We're not following. We're not serving. We're not what we should be. All right? Number four is the 12 emphasize day of judgment for the wicked and salvation for righteous. They both come together. This is the day of the Lord. So when that day comes, there's two things that are going to be happening. There's judgment. The rebellious and the wicked are judged, and Psalm 1 tells us they will not stand in the, excuse me, in the day of judgment. But the righteous will be blessed. To the prophets, God was overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present since Abraham Herschel in his classic book on the prophets. Near the beginning and end of the 12, an ominous note was struck. This is Joel 2, 11 and 12, and Malachi 4, 5 and 6. This day, the phrase the day, occurs repeatedly throughout the 12. Some scholars go so far as to say it is the theme of the 12, the day of judgment. For the prophets, nothing mattered but to be aligned with God's vision of life in the world. Now just think about that sentence. Nothing mattered except to be aligned with God's vision for the world. What would change in your life and our minds and the life of our churches if the one thing that mattered was that we aligned ourselves with God's vision of life in the world? You know, so, sometimes there's about an upswing, especially in the um, upper teens, maturity uh, crowd, uh, which is a good thing. But it's been an emphasis of God since the beginning. So, you know, the church has shirked its responsibility. It's the old pendulum swing thing, you know. Um, God cares very much about justice issues and has a lot to say about those who don't care. And the, the fifth emphasis, the 12 announced the coming of a new David who brings salvation. A major emphasis in the 12 is the city of Jerusalem and David. The phrase latter days is a technical expression associated with the last days. You can see this in Hosea 3.5, Micah 4.1 and 5.2, uh, Joel 3.18-21, Amos 9.11 and 15, Obadiah 21, Micah 5.1-5, Zephaniah 3.14-18, Haggai 2.20-23, Zechariah 3.8-10, 6, 9.9-10, 14.8. Okay? I know, a lot of passages, right? This, is, this should all be in the PowerPoint, in the notes section. The prominence of David in Jerusalem represents fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which is the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham in his 12. So this is in your uh, covenants just pile on top of each other. From Genesis to 2 Samuel 7 to the messianic of, about Jesus, etc. And eventually through the eschatology of the end days. So, um, the specific name of a With that in mind, with well, is the finally wakes up and then he goes too. All right, so this is the theological outline of the twelve. Okay, and this actually is in your textbook. This is right from House. Okay, and so you can see here that you have, as I mentioned, the first six relate to sin, the next three punishment, and the last three restoration. Now it's not that. The others don't discuss those issues. They do. There's just a heavy hand and focus on them. So the big focus in the first six is the level of sin. And then what happens? Well, they're going to be punished. And that's what the focus is here. And then there's going to be restoration. 
Because that's what God's goal is always. It's to correct you. It's, it's to bring about this restoration of relationship. So, for instance, in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the restoration of the temple, Jerusalem, and the Jewish people. That's, that's the restoration effect. And the punishment. You've got and Nahum, Assyria's punishment. Habakkuk, Israel and Babylon's punishment. Zephaniah, the punishment of all nations. There's nobody that escapes it. God's people and the nations, they all get it. Okay? And so, again, you can refer uh, to your textbooks because that's uh, directly where this is actually taken from. Okay? All right, so with that understanding of the 12... There's a framing of the 12 that I find very interesting. Hosea starts out in 1.6, which we're going to jump into Hosea in just a moment, with the phrase, you're not loved. And Malachi ends in 1.2 with, I have loved you. And so you have this framing of this entire thing that we're talking about, um, all So let me just conclude the, the intro of the 12 with this. When we look at pretty much every other book in this, in this course, we have tried, because of um, my conviction about SPSU, anybody remember what SPSU means? Selectivity, purpose, unity. Yep, good. Selectivity, purpose, structure, unity, right? So my conviction that um, these books are not haphazardly thrown together. There's not a bunch of uh, transcripts thrown in a room and shuffled around, and that's how they got in the Bible, but rather they're um, ordered in a uh, cohesive manner to get a point across. And so we might not quite understand that whole order or structure yet because they were written a long time ago to a different group of people who had a, a different understanding, and we have a big gap in our shared pool of knowledge. But because of that conviction, we've looked at every book and we've kind of searched for or looked for somebody who has uh, studied in depth that could point us in the direction of what that structure looks like for the book. You should be able to take a, a, a book of the Bible and boil it down to a sentence or two and say what the main theme of the book is and how everything else relates to it. Well, now we're doing it with the 12, which we would see as 12 as a book, but the Hebrew Bible kind of viewed as all one. So God moves from not loved to in punishment, in restoration.